Warning, this program typically features respectful, nuanced, and well-informed commentary, strong language, obscure pop culture references, and spurious allegations. We know of new methods of attack. The Trojan Horse, the fifth column. Greetings, and welcome back to another exciting installment of the fifth column podcast. This is your weekly rhetorical consultant in the news cycle people that make it occasionally ourselves. I'm Camille Foster. I do all kinds of remarkable things at Freethink. I am back in, in the Bay Area, but I am joined via internet connection uh, by Matt Welch, editor-at-large Reason Magazine, Michael Moynihan, who's a Vice News, who's going by the handle Squirtle today. Squirtle! I'm sure we'll get into. <laughs> Squirtle! As yeah. all of you Pokemon fans, yes. longtime Pokemon fans, of which um, there, there must be many. I was You know unaware. who Squirtle is, but you may not I, know I that didn't. he had a cameo in, yes. a, in a recent major news story. We major are here to break film. that story for you. Yes. A film that you maybe haven't seen. I've never heard of Squirtle, but I am now <laughs> going to only be going by the name Squirtle like when <laughs> Prince changed his name to that symbol. Because oh, like yeah. I, because of Sony or whatever, this is my version. I am Squirtle. Oh yeah. my god, that's the name now, of my that's the name of my memoir. <laughs> I am Squirtle. Now, what I'm sure people don't know is that Squirtle, the turtle from Pokemon, he yeah. is featured in a photograph which was part of a, a long piece in the Daily Mail, uh, which was about Hunter Biden's laptop. Which the Daily Mail is reporting that they have themselves confirmed. Uh, that the laptop is indeed real. Um, and this comes on the heels of Hunter Biden, who has been out doing the press rounds for his new book, this tell-all memoir, which apparently does not tell quite all. When asked about this this <laughs> laptop, which was a big deal earlier uh, in the week during an interview with, I don't remember who, this is like ABC or something, uh, he, he essentially yeah. used the I don't remember defense. Like, I well, mean, yeah. could be maybe not my laptop, but I don't remember. In his case... Could be several decades of not remembering. <laughs> it looks yeah, like it. but uh, <laughs> I think Matt's right. It's totally plausible that uh, Senior Squirtle might not remember <laughs> some of the stuff he was involved in. Homeboy's Squirtle been snorting is Squirtle, banana peels. Yeah. Out there. There, there's a there's a photo in this in this whole thing with a person who appears to be Biden, the younger Biden, laying in a bed, straddled by two buxom women. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, one of them is topless. The other is very nearly topless. Neither one of them is wearing much. So I'm already very ashamed for him. Both um, are swiping and, credit cards. And it appears in the show. This, was, this may be one of many photos from, uh, from the younger Biden's Pornhub account where he had been working on a, a career potentially as a uh, budding pornographer, which, listen, there is no judgment here. Um, in fact, reading the whole essay made me very sad for Mr. Biden, but Seeing in the photo, in the background of the photo, a massive stuffed animal, which is this yes. Pokemon turtle who goes by the name of Squirtle, which when you take that in the context of Pornhub, sure. multiples prostitutes straddling young Biden and Squirtle the turtle in the background, you just, it doesn't get any better than that. And that is what uh, this news cycle is all about. I assumed when I first saw it. I thought he was a furry and there was like a human. <laughs> there was like Vern Troyer was in there or something. Oh, I couldn't, I couldn't. R.I.P. R.I.P. Oh, that's right. He died. Sorry. Oh God. That was, I didn't Did mean to. That's okay. He's, he's been gone for a little he's while. So it's a lovely fine. Guy. It's Very fine fun. to make jokes now. Um, it's fine. Yeah. Time <laughs> plus tragedy or whatever. Uh, but yeah, no, the funny thing about this is that the Daily Mail is still on this story. And, and it's like, people were like, you know what? I think I even said this at the time. I don't really care about the New York Post story. I don't really care because it's, you know, it doesn't have anything to do with, we're not electing him as president. 
And it's like the reason this story is still going and that I'm reading it is because it is absolutely hilarious. And I can't, I can't stop reading oh, holy these cow. things. What, what happened? Is it going to breaking news alert? No, I just, I finally, I, so when you guys are talking, I'm obviously not listening to you, but I am uh, doing a Google image search on Hunter Biden and Squirtle. And, oh. uh, and, and sadly, sadly, there's no evidence of what you guys had sent me in the text string. Um, and, you know, I've been, I'm a, I'm a busy uh, man, as you both know. Uh, and so when you had sent me the image earlier, I didn't really like, I didn't blow it up. I didn't look at it closely. <laughs> yeah, I did. So now blowing it up and watching these butt-to-butt girls uh, on top yes. of a prone mm-hmm. lying on his back, Hunter Biden. We're not supposed to talk about this, by the way. Sorry, Glenn Greenwald. We're, we're doing prurient work yeah. here. Um, but no, it's Squirtle. It's, it's the Squirtle's the in the match. Squirtle he's is... so big. He's, he's so big. That's a big the, Squirtle. These, the, that is like the, these that is the largest stuffed Squirtle I've ever seen. And I'm a Dude, Pokemon these, like, fan. These Ukrainian women come in and like, what is Big Turtle doing in this big? It's anonymous. Why are you a Big Turtle? Just Wait, shut up and get vice on. President. <laughs> did, did you see the dog in the bed too? No. Look at uh, the, the picture. Just, Wait, go look at the yeah. picture. Is it a live dog? It looks. Jeez. It appears to be a live dog, not happy about yeah. what's going on. Yeah. Just well, not feeling comfortable. Bestiality often doesn't make animals happy, no, which I'm, is the real he's problem. He's like here. this. He's like this whole thing is gross. I'm not even sure. <laughs> I'm not, I don't like this at all. That's what the dog. It should be like a think a think bubble of the dog saying that. And and Hunter's got like the manuscript of his new. Like he's out promoting a book now, right? Like. Yeah. What's it called? Like Lost in the Trap House or something? I can't remember. It's like hot no, but there was whatever. Works on a couple wait, of levels. Matt, I'm looking at this photo now in Daily Mail. They actually have a red circle around the dog. In the bed. <laughs> the because they analysis. don't want you to miss the dog in the bed. They know. Uh, they, they have helpfully pixelated the women's faces, which is actually hard. Because if I'm actually going to score a photo like this and say, oh, yeah. you know, there's, there's Hunter. He's got a six yeah. and a seven straddling him. You know, I want to be able to do that. Hard to do if I can't see things. Yeah. So, but, shame but on you, you see the dog. Mail. I've That's circled the dog do. in the back. <laughs> Big circle around the dog. Important. <laughs> oh, but to be God. clear, Squirtle is almost as big and might be might weigh as much as the Ukrainians. Yes. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> he's, he's definitely yes. competitive with the Ukrainians. No, I mean the two oh, of them my are, are, are clocking in at 170 pounds, and Hunter's oh, probably God. down at pretty low weight at that point too, from all the. All the crack that he was smoking. I mean, look, it's not. <laughs> wait, I'm not telling you. He's like literally on the television every day. Like, I really love crack. And there was a time where I couldn't <laughs> stop smoking crack. And I'm like, okay. Like, I don't understand why I care about this. But no, you know. it's, it's, a, it's a bizarre story. But it's a story that I think has, has some resonance for a bunch of different reasons. I don't know that the, the shortcomings of your children are necessarily instructive when we're talking about whether or not you you ought to be president of the United States. No. Um, but there are other issues here that are of interest, and certainly the treatment of the New York Post and the way various media companies and platforms decided to treat this story, which is to say that they, they looked to torpedo it, essentially saying that they had various policies that were being violated because it was presumed to be some sort of hack and there were allegations from various Democrats, including Joe Biden, um, who said on numerous occasions that, yeah, this was some sort of Russian plot to undermine him, um, to undermine the him, girls were Russian, the, the candidate. <laughs> um, but so. none of none of that is necessarily true. Um, it, it 
does at least seem plausible at this point that the laptop was legitimately Hunter's and Hunter seems to have indicated at least once that the laptop might have been his. So there's that angle of the story is certainly interesting and important. And and there there are other national stories that are percolating right now. The the Matt Gates situation is still very much unresolved. It appears today <laughs> that the other guy who was potentially under investigation has agreed to cooperate with authorities. Yeah. Um, yes. So it sounds like he's pled guilty to something, uh, and his lawyer has suggested that we this don't ought know to though, do we? Matt is, Gates right? nervous, but we don't know anything yet yeah. about Justice's case. Yeah. Um, what we do know is that the New York Times has reported that they have seen text messages and they have seen transaction records from Cash App uh, that very clearly, according to the New York Times, implicate Mr. Gates in having given money. And perhaps other things of value, but specifically money via Cash App to various women whom he and this other person, um, uh, I don't remember the guy's last name, so maybe one of you guys know, but both of these guys have apparently given money to various people in order to have sexual relations with them. This is like so one of those say. websites. Yeah, one of those websites I mean, you where just you be give very people generous. money. Yeah. Well, it, they, they were apparently <laughs> finding these women on a website where you give yeah things of value to someone so they'll go on a date with you seeking arrangements it is called yeah. and it's for uh sugar daddies uh and they claim uh that uh that it's not a, a prostitution site or an escort site it's just for rich men uh to meet uh vapid women who like to hang out with rich men <laughs> and uh you know of course there's no expectation of, of sex at all uh, why would anyone think that? But uh, but yeah. So they. By the way, I just want to say that this is already uh, building up to be the sexiest installment of the Fifth Column podcast. <laughs> the first two <laughs> stories are just about prostitutes. <laughs> but we're bipartisan. There's that's an, true. There's an anti-communist uh, angle um, that's always available, which is um, when I uh, uh, was trying to live in Cuba in 1998 in Havana. Huh. We were staying at a family's house uh, across. This was our big idea after. <laughs> Central Europe's like, let's go yeah. move to Havana. I like um, the way this story is starting. All the Cubans are like, we're trying to leave this country. <laughs> You're coming here? We lived across the uh, street in a house from the uh, the what was used to be called the Havana Hilton. Maybe it's still called the Havana Hilton, mm -hmm. and um, which was nationalized like everything um, after the revolution. And had to, to do some transactions there. Like if I wanted to send a fax for $6 a minute. Um, uh, I'd have to go to the Havana Hilton. It wouldn't work, but I'd pay them the money. Uh, of course, it's state-owned hotel. <laughs> and on the ground floor, and it took – I'm dull-witted, as you guys know, and a couple of listeners mm -hmm. have caught on to. Um, it took me a long time to figure out why is all of the uh, kind of uh, street-level uh, commerce, ground-floor-level commerce, hmm. um, inside the Havana Hilton state-owned hotel here, which is one of the half-dozen hotels that foreigners, rich foreigners, would come and stay at, um, were all geared towards the tastes of 14-year-old girls. It was like Hot Topic. And not even Hot oh, Topic. No. It would be like Claire's. You know mm -hmm. you know what I'm talking about? Like the mall mm -hmm. stores with little gigaws in it. Mm -hmm. It was like, that. Did, I don't get it. Why is that? And it took me a while to realize that, again, state-owned, every single part of this, it's that um, the government, the communist government, which uh, at one point in its life had bragged so much about eradicating prostitution from the island, decided that it would make <laughs> money 
off the taste of definitely not 18-year-old girls who are the prostitutes of all the Canadians and Italian men who are coming into Cuba all the time wow. and buying buying them presents uh, in a wow. sugar daddy uh, style way. Um, so, yeah, this wow. is the anti-communist and angle. D- I don't know real. why you're impugning just the Canadians and Italians <laughs> when it's clearly 90% German. Germans. <laughs> I'm sorry. I was, I was blanking on like which, because it was, it's, it was yeah, definitely those. For some like some like party gifts for my friend I've just met who's like very young and like very nice. What do you have on this island? Anything with unicorns. Now that actually makes me a little uncomfortable, Matt Welch, that these are gifts. These are the particular gifts that they're giving to the women that they're spending time with. And one wonders whether or not they're actually women. So, yeah. No, they weren't. They just weren't. Um, And that was like, uh, so like the, the communist revolution was making money out of um, the prostitution of 14 year old girls. Jeez. Absolutely. With with like knowledge and forethought and like we let's squeeze every last last dollar out of this. Uh super super gross. Matt Gates um who's a clown who apparently has gone with now Indeed. the uh, uh Jim Traficant uh, uh Pompadour yeah. which yeah, is yeah. a pretty interesting look uh, <laughs> uh in response to all that. I miss him. Uh, yeah. uh, <laughs> that's the response to all. He was the best. Um uh <laughs> It's amazing to me how many people um, uh, who probably would self-describe as like good liberal journalists, the Josh Marshalls of the world, absolutely gleefully like, oh, sex trafficking case. Look at him. He's doing all the sex trafficking. And look, he did mm-hmm. this thing on Venmo. Um, and it's like, have you not read an article by Elizabeth Nolan Brown, by yeah. uh, uh, Emily Yoff, a bunch of other people about, about how um, – Sex trafficking is this terribly illiberal, anti-liberal dragnet in which we're describing transactions, which are gross, entirely gross, but are like sugar daddy transactions between adult 30-something-year-olds and 17-year-old girls. Um, it's gross. In some in some states, it's going to be illegal, but it's also like you just crossed a state line and bought someone a unicorn stuffed animal. Um, this is now sex trafficking because we've allowed that word to mean everything possible and have all these these uh, these horrifying satanic panic style um, ideas about it. And what you're describing is grossness. It's not like a international Jeffrey Epstein, you know, sex slave ring. And the 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 glee with which people will say, "Ah, oh, great, my political opponent." Um, has been caught up in this thing whose very name and definition has really not a hell of a lot to do with the underlying activity. Um, it's gross. It's just a reminder that you'll never yeah. – it's really difficult to get criminal justice reform because people love to jail their enemies in America always. Yeah. I mean one one thing I will say or two things actually I'd say about this – the case and what we know about it so far. And again, it's very little that we actually know about Gates himself. Um, one, the Joel Greenberg character. This is the – the county tax collector in Florida who was apparently the the guy who was on the website and was helping to facilitate relationships with these various women who were being compensated for intimate encounters at a minimum compensated for dating, which, according to the women, ended in sex. Um, he is a dastardly character who was actually indicted, I guess, about a year ago for doing some weirdness with respect to one of his political opponents, separate and apart from all of these shenanigans. He has a very, very dicey checkered past. 
um, and a fairly recent checkered past has violated the probation that he's on um, and has now agreed to work with the feds. So it's possible he's just trying to save his own ass here. And maybe it'll turn out that there isn't anything particularly nefarious about Gates' involvement in all of this. The, the second thing is, as you indicated, Matt, I mean, there's a question about a relationship per the New York Times with one particular 17-year-old woman uh, who apparently definitely had some sort of relationship with Mr. Greenberg, or at least purportedly had some sort of relationship with Mr. Greenberg, who compensated her in some way. There are questions as to whether or not she may have had some sort of relationship with Gates, which is the entire reason for the conversation about sex trafficking, although there are apparently some other related charges that could stem from using drugs to compensate someone in the process of a transaction because you know, they're sort of facilitating their drug habit and by by yeah. so doing trying to extract something from them which is apparently a prosecutable offense in it's certain a bit, cases it's a bit of a tough thing to prove of course but you know mm-hmm. it's funny how we treat this when it is matt gates and i am on board with everybody at matt gates is i mean not, he's a he's a horrible guy in almost every way but he mm-hmm. looks the part like he just looks <laughs> like a villain and it's like good god you're like you're the guy in the 80s movie who with like the popped collar who's like you know hassling the nerds kind of guy but you know it's funny how this is treated and i don't know if anyone's actually drawn the parallel this of course enormous differences too between his fellow floridian andrew gillum who mm. was you know right. caught with male oh prostitute Um, and a person who was literally like seizuring from a drug overdose in a, um, in a hotel room in Miami and a guy that before is the gubernatorial election, uh, was involved in a corruption scandal too, when he was like the mayor of what Tallahassee or something. And, you know, but he was of course this great progressive hero and somebody who was going to going to, you know, up and coming in the party sort of, you know, just South of Stacey Abrams was Andrew Gillum. And the way that that was treated was like, I'm glad he's gotten the help that he needs. And I'm glad that he's come out and acknowledged that, you know, he's, you know, gay, but he's married. Super gay. And, yeah. and it's Super, everyone well, was like bi, sympathetic. It sounds like well, he's yeah, saying, he right? bi, yeah. Because he still um, loves his wife and apparently is trying to yeah, work it out. Yeah, sure. Yeah. <laughs> I'm sure his wife was like, oh, yeah, I totally get that. Yeah. Um, when I'm bored, too, I'm like, I want to <laughs> meet a gay prostitute and smoke meth in a hotel room until one of them almost dies that sounds like a fun night. I mean, I mean, you when know, you put it like you know what been, they say. yeah, it might have been <laughs> exactly. a fun night. You know, I'm not, I'm not, you know, busting on Andrew Gillum. I'm just saying, kind of a double standard. I mean, obviously, <laughs> the Matt Gates thing seems as if there's a lot, you know, a lot of uh, political dimensions to it. Um, and this other character is, is a political operative that that he's associated with and has been in trouble for a number of things in the past and looks like he's in trouble for things in the future too. But yeah, this stuff <laughs> happens so like the Josh Marshalls of the world and these people that are that are doing end, end zone dances. You know, the th- difference between me and Josh Marshall is I do end, end zone dances on Andrew Gillum and Matt Gates. <laughs> so, <laughs> so let's let's have a new era of bipartisanship where we make fun of people who get caught with prostitutes um, and are doing drugs like Hunter Biden, Matt Gates, and Andrew Gillum. It's just a great crew of guys, to be honest. Uh, one of the uh, things that came out today that people were really excited to uh, spread was that, you know, either Gates or the other dude, what's his name, Justin Verlander, you said? Um, uh, it's, uh, <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah. Uh, Somebody who does known- not need prostitutes, by the way. It super does not. No. Uh, it was a known weed dealer. Like, so oh. now that's what we're doing? Like, oh, my God, he was hanging out with a weed dealer. 
Does that a mean he owns a sells shop? <laughs> something that it's like legal in a new state literally every day. <laughs> yeah. Um, and like even Chuck Schumer, the guy like who wanted to criminalize breakfast cereals back in the 90s, is like trying to bum rush uh, federal weed legalization at this point. Um, yeah. It's just stop it, people. Like you shouldn't cheer the arrest of people on bad laws. Bad laws should be repealed and no one should be arrested for that. Matt, you, I, you I, hit, I agree with that. Yeah. But you hit on something that's interesting that – we should make a chart, and I would, you know, our listeners are so good at things like this. I, if I, I advise them to make an enormous chart of the current Democratic Party, and like you said, Chuck Schumer, you know, who was was once a drug warrior and is now like, uh, let's legalize this federally, and because it's criminal justice reform, and blah blah blah. And I'm sure the word equity was thrown in there. By the way, I heard that on NPR <laughs> today. It was used casually in a news story. Uh, equity and I and it was it meant the thing that it's supposed to mean now. Not what, what, you, you know ha- you haven't been listening to NPR. Uh, I mean, no, I, like, I I stopped. And I I actually turned it on today. I was like, oh, we're recording within I'll... the first ten seconds. You're yeah, I was like, oh, we're recording tonight. Maybe I'll listen to it. <laughs> so, <laughs> but uh, the thing that I'd love to be be charted, and you can start with Joe Biden because it's a pretty rich vein with Joe Biden, is how much the progressive wing of the party has sort of taken over. And has everybody quaking in their boots. And it is amazing because it, it doesn't appear to me that th- there, there appears to me to be a case made for a, a sort of more centrist Democrat these days. But Joe Biden, the number of things, whether, you know, it's uh, free trade, immigration, anything that he's now like diving to the left. And you can do these audio comparisons to him uh, in the Senate 20 years ago to what he's saying now. And they are radically different, obviously. Chuck Schumer is just another one of these people. I'm sure Nancy Pelosi does it. I'm sure any of these old guard Democrats who are terrified of this new wave of progressivism that's taking over the party um, is doing it. And it's very, very similar to what happens to all these people who say Donald Trump is the most horrible person in the world. We have to save the party from, from him. I'll give an example of this. I mentioned this to you guys. Because uh, he has a YouTube channel that like has like three thousand videos and like thirty views, is uh, Ben Stein. Do you remember Ben Stein? Oh yeah, I was watching. Bueller. Yeah, I was watching Ferris Bueller with my daughter first time. She loved it and came up and I was like, oh, that guy's a political guy. And he used to write a column uh, for the American Spectator called Ben Stein's Diary. He had a show called Wins Ben Stein's Money, uh, which I, was that the one with Jimmy Kimmel? There was one with Jimmy Kimmel. Uh, yeah. Yeah, yeah, it was Jimmy Kimmel. Yeah. yeah. I forgot he was on that show. Yeah, yeah. That's, that's how he got his And then start. The Man Show. And then The Man Show. Mm-hmm. All right. very, two very progressive shows. Um, yeah. <laughs> but, you know, and, and, I, and so I was like, oh, Ben Stein, I haven't heard of him in years. I looked up Ben Stein, and the first video I saw was from 2016, and he was doing these video commentaries for ABC or CBS, and he was looking straight to camera, and he was like, this man is a monster. He's a moral monster. This is right after the, the uh, grab him by the hoo-ha Grabbing by the Squirtle tape came out, and he was like, "You know, you, you, you have, it's like morality is what this party is about." And then I looked to the recent one, and he's like, "I mean, he's a Trump sycophant, like over the top. He's the greatest president of all time." And so Republicans have been doing this for the past years, but but people are paying less attention to the fact that Democrats are getting their progressive on in a way that is kind of curious when you look at their previous statements on a whole host of issues. 
I mean, Joe Biden in the I get one good metaphor a year and mine on his was that he was a rusty weather vane um, that will sort of creak, <laughs> creak in the direction of the prevailing winds slowly. Um, Who so makes the for determinations example, on whether or not Matt's metaphors are good? Matt you, the the, the know, American Metaphor Matt. Council, uh, which <laughs> has you. already refused this one. Yeah. <laughs> please, um, please go ahead, Mr. Welch. I'm sorry. Rusty but, weather vane, uh, you were saying. But <laughs> that, we call you Rusty. That also, what was the name of that dude? Uh, uh, Rusty Shackleford. Uh, Rusty Shackleford. <laughs> <laughs> he had like a novel called like Bicycle Shorts or something. Yeah, yeah. Like, um, <laughs> oh, the fun we had. Uh, my God, I can't believe we, you and I worked in an office together. Yeah, it's crazy. That's just it's terrible. It's like four um, decades ago. But uh, so, you know, part of that metaphor depends on the strength of the wind. If the wind is blowing really hard, he will go in that direction. And I think also he's enjoying himself. Like the the one point nine trillion dollar um, American Rescue Plan, in, in air quotes. Yeah. Um, uh, like I, again, it started with that as the opening bid of the number, and then it's like, no, oh, fuck it, no, that's what the number is. Like I don't, I don't even care what's in it. It's just we need to spend that uh, amount, and we will not negotiate with any Republicans. All Democrats will be on board. And um, Democrats loved that process because they got everything they wanted except the fifteen dollars minimum wage. Uh, and and looking at his two point two trillion dollar infrastructure package, which like the American Rescue Plan, only you know X percentage of it has anything to do with the you know infrastructure of its, of its uh, total mm -hmm. thing. But he had a quote from today or yesterday, and we're recording this on a Thursday evening. Um, Again, saying that the that the details don't matter so much, but the price tag does, um, uh, which is always a great sign in any politician for any policy, etc. Oh, yeah. But it's he enjoys this because well, what's happening? He's, he has better approval ratings than Donald Trump ever did. Um, there is kind of no natural resistance now to Democrats spending money forever. We I think the uh, the mm -hmm. deficit the deficit this month is bigger. Uh, at least in nominal terms, it's like six hundred and eighty-three billion dollars. Right, uh, it's bigger than any deficit had been uh, in nominal terms uh, in any year prior to the Obama presidency. <laughs> this month, one month, mm -hmm. like we just don't care anymore. And so he enjoys the wind is blowing so hard in this direction, and he's enjoying his winds, and so he's just going for it. Um, I would, uh, I would uh, hasten to point out that similarly to the way that. Like, you know, we like to say that Bernie Sanders kind of took over the party in many ways. He sort of did, never quite getting to the mountaintop. But it was always the worst part of Bernie Sanders that won sway. Joe mm -hmm. Biden is still not going to legalize marijuana. Maybe Chuck Schumer will convince him. But he's going to drag his feet on that. Kamala Harris said just today, like, oh, he's been so busy. Just can't do that. Do that little piece of it. Um, uh, Michael, you'd mentioned immigration. Um, he's Biden has actually been kind of slow and uncertain about the kind of what to do with immigration. He made these verbal promises that have helped create what you saw at the border, what we all seen at the border, which is horrifying. Um, but like in terms of actually taking concrete policies, he hasn't gone there yet. We can mm -hmm. argue about whether we like them or individually or not. Um, uh, but also Afghanistan, which we're up at, right up against the deadline for pulling out American troops at the end of this month. Um, he's not going to do it. No one thinks he's going to do it. He had said that repeatedly on the campaign trail that he was definitely going to do that, as mm. did pr pretty much the rest of the Democratic field. So like some of the progressives, more attractive ideas, um, he's still going to show the rust. Foreign but when it comes to throwing specifically, yeah, foreign mm -hmm. policy. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, you know, Russia is like massing 
you know, uh, uh, troops in the the Arctic Circle and on on the Ukrainian border. Um, I uh, and all that kind of stuff. So he's not going to do any of that, I I don't think. Uh, But he is going to do the spend all the money. The spending, yeah, is the thing. I mean, remember that Bill Clinton said, you know, this is the end of the era of big government or the end of big government as we know it. And, And he was on bored with that but he was the one that was slightly reticent and and not really but he was slightly reticent and you could see it in that nafta speech that he gave when he you know he was on board with nafta but you know he's being supported by unions and he's like you know big union guy so he gives this pain speech about you know how the union like I, i i get what you're saying here but this is ultimately a win for the american consumer and blah 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 and, you know, was completely happy with, you know, giving a middle finger to the unions on NAFTA, which was a very, very big deal for unions at the time. And he was very much on board with the sort of, and I hate the word neoliberal, because I think it's, you know, a stupid, pointless slur to say, you know, somebody who's like more market oriented. And that's essentially what he was. And now, obviously, the opposite is true. And there is no, I mean, this this is this insane monetary policy where it is literally, there's no number that no one, that anyone will say no to at this point. Yeah. Because, you know, after 2008, 2009, the predictions of inflation that never happened, they believe now, and I've seen people kind of do little head fix in this direction, that there can actually not be inflation if we keep printing money and running up budget deficits that are historic in their size and scope. So, I mean, they're totally convinced that it doesn't matter. And it's like, that was a Republican thing. I mean, you remember Dick Cheney said that, um, mm-hmm. I, I guess it was, what was it in the Reagan year when he said, you know, deficits don't matter. Like literally uh, he said- he, he said that uh, during uh, the George W. Bush uh, Oh, was it then too? He did, okay. Okay, I thought he said yeah. when he was in the like H.W. Bush presidency too, but it's- Might have. Would, might have, mm-hmm. yeah, right? Mm-hmm. And And now, you know- it's like I think it was was a Nathan Glazer, who was like an original kind of liberal neocon who wrote that book. We're all multiculturalists now, and now it's like we're all no longer deficit hawks. <laughs> we're we're all big spenders now. I mean, it's just nobody cares. I mean, you would imagine with the level of this, particularly when you kind of go line item, and this is an infrastructure bill which is about human infrastructure in a lot of ways, yeah, yeah. places like, yeah, absolutely. Uh, you know, and, and there's one bit about, um, you know, about uh, corporate welfare. But, yeah. There's, you know. I mean, there's an enormous amount of that. <laughs> there's like, you know, uh, funding, uh, you know, uh, childcare for, it's not, I mean, how is this infrastructure stuff? And then of course the racial element, which is like, there has to be an equity element to infrastructure is like, are you building fucking bridges? I mean, what are you talking about? Everything is infrastructure and there's no limit to spending. That's where we are right now. Well, it is interesting from a foreign policy standpoint. I'd I'd be remiss not to mention this uh, piece in The Times from earlier this week, uh, title of which was Democrats push Biden to take harder line on Saudi Arabia. Specifically, um, it is referring to the conflict between the Saudis and well, the the conflict with the Saudis in Yemen Mm -hmm. um, and specifically the fact that they have been calling on Biden as recently as yesterday, perhaps even today. Um, but Democrats have been calling on Biden to to say something, to to not be involved with supporting effectively the Saudi blockade in Yemen that is creating a, ma- a major humanitarian crisis. And it is certainly the case that under President Trump, there were plenty of people uh, on both sides of the aisle who were somewhat critical of U.S. policy. Some were vehemently critical of it, and I think appropriately so. Um, but 
you know, even after the Biden administration got this report fingering the the Saudis very specifically, um, and MBS in particular for the death of Jamal Khashoggi, like virtually nothing has changed about yeah. the U.S. relationship with the Saudis, despite yeah. tough talk from Biden early on. Um, and, you know, we're several months into this administration now, uh, and they seem pretty content to to have it their way with respect to the status quo. I suppose another interesting place where there's a bit of a disconnect between what Biden wants and what some other prominent Democrats want is with this uh, Major League Baseball situation in Georgia. We talked about the voter suppression stuff uh, uh, quite a bit last week, um, but we talked about it just before MLB made the decision to move the all-star game and the draft to Colorado. Um, And this was one of many states that were, you know, one of many, one of many companies uh, that were concerned about quote unquote voter suppression efforts on the part of the Georgia government um, and various other Republican uh, states where they've been taking actions, curtailing some of their um, early voting and making other related kind of changes uh, to their to their voter processes. Um, but what struck me was that Stacey Abrams had been a pretty vocal, um, and now there have been there's been additional reporting that she was directly involved uh, in talking with and trying to persuade Major League Baseball not to pull this game. And mm-hmm. she's explicitly said that you know while she supports boycotts, she uh, doesn't want the boycotts to harm particular people in these communities, and has said that it is important for you to sort of stand with us, speak out against these issues. Um, but not to boycott. But Biden expressly called for the major league boycott, if I'm not He mistaken. created it. Oh, yeah. I mean, I think he was the first one to say it, and the action happened right after. Yeah. I think it's directly tied like to within him. a day, right? Yeah, and Stacey Abrams clearly called. I mean, Major League Baseball is not misremembering this. I mean, mm-hmm. she called and said, you know, get it the hell out of my state. And then when she's in public, I mean— Keep in mind that this is a state that is not swung entirely to Democrats. These were two very, very close Senate elections, very, very, very close uh, presidential election. It's a very, very purple state. And you're not going to make any friends by saying, oh, yeah, I just made sure that Major League Baseball boycotted um, our state because of voter ID laws. I mean, this is I mean, and again, yeah, it's more complicated than voter ID laws, but that's effectively how you can play it, particularly mm-hmm. when Colorado has very similar laws and you can't give people water in line if you're part of a campaign in Colorado either. And now there's right. corporations saying that they're going to uh, I can't remember what, what company it was uh, that said um, kind of a preemptive shot across the bow at similar uh, reforms, laws, et cetera, in Florida, I think. Uh, voter laws in Florida that the that the, the, the Florida legislature is going to take up, and they were saying like you know we're not going to do business with you in Florida if you do X Y or Z, but it's a bizarre bizarre thing where you have to understand that the, like everybody understands now that the the dominant thing that you have to believe is this kind of you know I guess progressive you can call it progressive narrative because you know companies desperately run away from politics in the past. You know, if somebody's on their board and they go on Twitter and they say something about, you know, that they like Governor Abbott or something, they wrap them across the knuckles with a ruler and they disavow it. And now there's, we know that these are the, the positions you can take publicly. It's kind of post-George Floyd in a way where all these corporations started making public pronouncements mm-hmm. and saying this is actually the acceptable political thing, to, despite the fact that many, many people might disagree with us. It's more mm-hmm. important 
that the bien pensant opinion is on our side and we don't get sort of canceled online. And it's just a bizarre state of affairs now that Major League Baseball is making, you know, sort of political pronouncements. And, mm-hmm. you know, I mean, it's there's so many, well, what abouts? And I yeah. don't suspect that they're going to be canceling any contracts in China mm-hmm. if China has, you know, is playing, you know, Major League Baseball or selling jerseys or whatever. And despite the fact that most of these companies will, will have probably had pretty pretty long track records of giving substantial sums of money to both political parties yes. historically, whether or not that will change in the future um, yes. will be interesting. Much I believe like SEIU was not was among some of the organizations involved in calling for Delta to take some sort of action and, and various yes. other companies, um, which I think is an Employees International wrinkle. Union, yeah. which is among the most uh, left-leaning and activist Hugely powerful country. country. Yeah. 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 It'll be interesting to see how all of this switches. I mean, it, I, I suspect a lot of this has to do with the fact that the prevailing winds with respect to the, the culture in like elite media organizations have obviously shifted. And it is very obvious how, how to be on the right side of those folks when it comes to lots of issues, specifically issues of quote unquote racial justice. Mm-hmm. Uh, so the, the, imperative for you to seek to speak out and to be seen on the right side of history and to avoid essentially the the public mobbing that might accompany being caught on the wrong side of these issues at least seemingly caught on the wrong side of these issues because plenty of companies haven't said anything and whether or not they're seeing profound repercussions for not getting involved uh, well, it's. It, I, I mean, mean it's it doesn't a, seem that that's the case. No, it's so a hangover I, from Kaepernick. I wonder if that'll though. change. I mean, this is yeah. a Kaepernick hangover. I mean, the mm. NFL had no idea, and I don't think this was as, as I don't think it was deliberate at all. But it was de- as deliberate as people suspected it was. Um, just punishing somebody for their politics. It was, you know, I think it was kind of, you know, irrespective of what the political sentiment was. It's like we don't want to alienate our fans. We don't introduce politics into this, et cetera. And they made a kind of uh, bad decision, a couple of bad decisions. But uh, now it's like they're never going to allow that to happen again, mm-hmm. to be on the other side of that. And MLB Although it didn't, it didn't really underst- ever seem like the Kaepernick stuff actually hurt the NFL. And, I mean, and to the extent they were experiencing any sort of issues, it no, really seemed like you're the issues right. in terms of viewership and yes. everything sort of started after politics became front and center That's in the correct. NFL. Something very similar happening with the NBA. It's hard to say whether or not, you know, just the general trend in NBA viewership, which has just been on the decline, um, is related to the fact that it's become such a, a platform for so much explicitly progressive politics, especially on issues of racial justice, but certainly not limited to that. Even their like get out and rock the vote efforts in some cases were explicitly directed um, against particular Republicans, particularly in that Georgia race, uh, because I believe the um, the woman in the Senate in Georgia, whose name is escaping me, she was a, an owner of a franchise, but I'm forgetting which franchise that was, but I don't watch WNBA basketball. Oh, uh, yeah, yeah. Of, it was Kelly like Loughlin. Most Americans. Yeah, yeah. yeah she was. But yeah. What team was that? Was, I don't know. Who cares? Doesn't matter. <laughs> so Nobody's many jokes I was that. about to make that I'm not going to make. Uh, <laughs> yeah, no. Well, they, they play a purer form of basketball, which is why they, they are yeah. winning in the Three colored ball, right? Battle. Um, <laughs> that's what it does. Uh, Definitely no dunking. None of that. Garbage. Well, here's the thought experiment for you guys. I'm going to think if you can f- figure this one out and to listeners too. Is there a progressive policy that you can think of that a state would enact that Major League Baseball, the NFL, the NHL, 
the WNBA would hmm. say, we are going to pull out of this state, punish you um, for our you know, all-star game, for our finals, for our World Series, whatever, because of this policy. What is the progressive hmm. version of this? <laughs> and if there is hmm. none... Then I'm going to introduce you to a man called Donald Trump, who's going to rile up people and say the culture hates you and the culture is yeah. against you. And this is mm. precisely what I hear every time I talk to people like this. But is there a version? I mean, am I wrong in thinking there probably isn't? There isn't. <laughs> I don't think I there is. I can't. I can't think of one. Yeah, I yeah, can't. Think the, of one. the racial justice stuff is unique in this respect. Like the 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 polarity, its ability to to get people supercharged to kind of demand action from people, but is, but also unique. But also like uh, gay rights stuff. I mean, there was state boycotts over mm-hmm. transgender um, bathrooms. Yeah, yeah. transgender sure. then, bathrooms. Then maybe social justice is the appropriate way to amend that. The mm. social justice stuff broadly seems to be able There's to evoke those concerns in a way couple that other of- issues can't couple of points I wanted to get to uh, or reference an email that was sent to us by Sharon, who corrected. Uh, apparently, I was talking about the Georgia uh, bill last time we were gathering. I don't know. I think I had about 7,000 whiskeys, but she said. Uh, <laughs> the we Foster were, uh, Brooks we, episode. We was drinking. I don't know. Georgia doesn't care, man. What a, one listener uh, uh, pointed out, I think it was in the comments on Patreon, that I, I, I love how Welch just pulled the goalie halfway yeah. through. Yes. Right. <laughs> no. That was you pulled the goalie in the second period. <laughs> <laughs> kind of midway through. Whatever. Sharon, Sharon uh, offered two <laughs> corrections to me. One, uh, this is about Georgia. Election officials can provide water in line. It was designed due to, to people uh, in campaign apparel giving yes. out water mm-hmm. gift cards in Metro Atlanta. Mm-hmm. Um, and also to bounce local election officials, which I had criticized, requires a three-election cycle process mm. in which certain metrics are not met. So it's not just picking up a phone and saying, I don't like this. So thank you, Sharon. For that, uh, a thing that I would say about voting um, rights arguments, which is kind of uh, one of those classic um, categories of stories, um, abortion may be in that category too. Some foreign policy stuff involving Israel might be in that category too. That, for me personally, has always been the the passion and the heat is so intense on the two basic sides of the issue. Um, and the kind of uh, hyperbole or dishonesty associated with it um, and my own personal feelings somewhere in the middle of it all that I have this tendency and it's not something that I brag about uh, is to check out. It's just to say, OK, I just, you know, it's it's going to be too much effort to try to figure this one out um, or figure this like category out. Um, I'm going to spend, you know, time better on obscure you know teachers union crap or you know the the 1905 chicago white Sox or whatever right like i'll find my own little areas to mine so voting discussion has uh been part of that because people before this cycle before trump went nuts and the maga riots uh on january which is crazy which is just an incredible escalation um the the workaday arguments about like showing voter id or not or like what are the sort of uh the things that we should do those little things not the big um uh campaigns about like oh there's you know uh five million fraudulent votes cast in the 2016 election i would write about those because that's such obvious bullshit but just like the exact little details um i i wouldn't like get into because i don't really know what i think about all of them and it's super complicated uh and whatnot however um one thing that I would point out is that 
Um, and this goes back to one of the first things that I ever wrote for Reason, uh, uh, like in 2002. I think it was the first like online article I'd written for them, or one of the, among the first five. Um, the biggest single act of of protecting and expanding voting rights, or I better said, restoring voting rights from people from which it was taken away, is stuff that is almost never talked about um, in national politics when people are arguing about voting. It is allowing people who have already served their sentences for committing crimes yep. and have gone through parole to vote again. We had just this week, I believe, in Washington state, Jay Inslee signed into law the restoration of voting rights uh, for, I believe, something like 69,000 ex-felons. This, to me, is such a no-brainer. Um, Republicans for years have opposed this because uh, they argue mostly um, that they're, those people are just going to vote Democrat, and that's bad, which is a horrifyingly bad argument. Um, uh, and, and it echoes some of their arguments for some, uh, like, of the laws that they're trying to pass in 43 different states right now. It's like we, you know, they're voting badly. Um, it's the wrong populations voting. This is this is not a good argument for things. Um, if you're an adult and you've served your time, you should be able to vote. It's just kind of like that's a, a basic type of thing. Um, it's amazing how little energy has been spent on that. That's picked up in the last four or five years. Um, Florida is always sort of the ground zero for that because so they've had a, a disproportionate number of it. And I forget exactly where they are. They had passed um, liberalization and they clawed it back. And so I don't know exactly where it is. But um, like if you are consumed with the passion of expanding and protecting the franchise, that does so much more than the the arguments on the margins of this particular issue, state by state by state. And also, if you're parachuting yourself into uh, local and state conflict, as I was last time drunkenly on the, on the podcast because it was national news and we were talking about it. Um, uh, chances are you're not going to have on your computer already uh, Excel spreadsheet comparing the number of days before uh, that you have to like apply for your absentee ballot or you, the, the amount of time, the various restrictions. New York State, where at least I think all three of us have, have voted at various times at New York State, has some of the worst fucking voting laws imaginable. It is so difficult to change your party. It's so difficult to be treated like anything but a leper if you are not a member of the Democratic Party at the polling booth. This is kind of a widespread occurrence that happens to people. Like, what do you mean you're not registered to a party? Let's just put you in this one. Um, it is really, really <laughs> hard. You have to register so many months in advance. Very, very deliberately restrictive voting rights. And when you parachute in, you're going to show a kind of ignorance of what the local laws are in Colorado versus Georgia and all of that. And, you know, congratulations to Major League Baseball for leaving a city. It's 52 percent black for Denver. Yeah. And, 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 and <laughs> we have a lot of listeners uh, in Denver. Don't insult them. <laughs> um, uh, very true about uh, restoring voting rights for felons. Uh, I, I interviewed Terry McAuliffe uh, when he was governor and he's running again uh, for governor of Virginia. And uh, in 2016, where he was restoring uh, voting rights for, I think it was a couple hundred thousand people. He ended up maybe even more than that. And uh, Ralph Northam did the same thing when he, he scrubbed the blackface off and was like, I'm going to start, I'm going to start making amends. It wasn't me in the picture, but I'm going to start making amends. And, uh, and, and, you know, together they, they did, and that's a great thing. And to, to what you said, Matt, it's the same thing about the Georgia thing that, you know, sticks in my craw is that the ultimately those 
new rules aren't nearly as onerous as as people say. And if you doubt that, then you have a mighty case to make when people of uh, you know prominence, maybe the president, uh, for instance, are saying it's worse than Jim Crow. And mm-hmm. I'll say it again: it's Jim Eagle. <laughs> <laughs> it's, it is like Walker it Texas Jim, Ranger. Jim Crow look like yeah. Jim Eagle. Yeah, <laughs> which doesn't make any sense. Make any sense. But, yeah, fine. How many whoppers has that dude told in oh the last my week? God. Or two? Oh my God! It's he is just, really, really piling them on. He's that, piling which, them on. You know, is, is he being portrayed you know, as a president who has a problem with telling the truth? Well, no, um, Matt, no, Matt Welch, but that's because he's, you know, telling conventional lies. And that's what we do in this country. Presidents tell conventional lies and that's how our politics works. And that's why Donald Trump is uniquely dangerous because he lies in such a sloppy like and it's easier way to, all the damn time. And it's I'm, I'm, easier actually, to buy I'm actually a gun making than a little fun at you, making a little fun at you, of you taking, taking a shot there because that's what you told me back in the day when Donald Trump was getting his lie on. And I was like, I don't know, Matt. I think this is uh, probably not no, Trump, worse. Trump's a, Trump's a worse liar. He lies more. I think he. But I think that's actually good. (laughs) The fact that he's a worse liar. It's 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 easier to detect. Everyone knows. I don't mean mean like. I don't mean that it's more obvious. He lies more, and it's more problematic. Yeah, his lies are more problematic because there's more of them, and they're more consequential eventually. I mean, the the Donald Trump one is. I always mention that Mary McCarthy line about Lillian Hellman. That every word she says is a lie, including and and the. And that's kind of like <laughs> what, what you get about Trump. But it, 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 to Camille's point, it's also true, though, that, 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 you know, he was so brazen and it was so, like, transparently false that, like, a child could understand that he was lying about half these things. But, the, but like, you know, the fake news and all this stuff, apparently that's over because, you know, 60 Minutes did a story that, you know, ultimately yes. amounted to being fake news. Um, mm-hmm. you know, suggesting that Governor DeSantis was, you know, uh, you know, giving favoritism to uh, public like paper play scheme. Yeah, and you know, there yeah. are Democrats in uh, Democratic mayors, people in in Florida, saying that's not true, and they're not backing away from it. Whereas, right. you know, there's so many things that get you destroyed your career in journalism these days. Um, you know, typically, yeah, sixty tweets, sixty minutes. Yeah, is saying, from your is saying like you know we've we've uh, have a half century worth of track track record of doing great work, mm-hmm. and we stand Vestigial by our story respectability completely. They are uh, they are like they are basically doing the Ralph Northam, the Andrew Cuomo, the Donald Trump. Just like I'm not going to yep. resign. I, I mean, I'm not yep. but that's also not even yep. true that they they have cocked up so many stories in the past. Yeah. I mean, I think it started like they were sued by. Either General Westmoreland or Creighton Abrams, one of the Vietnam uh, generals, and I think they, right. they they lost that case too because there's been a bunch of these things in the past where they've 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 screwed up royally and this stuff, and particularly in this one, which is which is egregious and like saying you know we obtained these documents about like they're fucking public documents. They're literally you obtained them on the internet. That's like saying I obtained a story today from the New York Times by going to www.newyorktimes. <laughs> it's like you didn't obtain it. That's the wrong verb. Like, don't <laughs> pretend that you got this at a fucking parking garage with, like, Bob Woodward and Deep Throat. I mean, the whole thing was, like, it wasn't even overstatement. It was mm-hmm. radically overstated to a point that the this, this story was a non-story and fell apart. Like deceptively you know? edited. Deceptively, deceptively edited. edited his, his responses to the story in uh, in You a, cannot uh, connect to, to, to – but what they did, the other thing is that you cannot connect two sentences – 
that are like every time I'm an edit for for something, like the lawyers, the lawyers look at this stuff and they will say, "Are these sentences in the same paragraph in the same answer?" If they're mm-hmm. from different answers, they won't mm-hmm. allow it. Like absolutely yeah. not. And then I mean, this is like serious. Like I'm, I would never do that because I know the lawyers would would shoot it down. And that's what sixty minutes did. They've been yeah. there for almost fifty you, years. You've seen them do this stuff a couple of times recently, though. They they had a, a pretty. Um, I remember a pretty dodgy interview with Trump actually. Um, and, and, it, and it's Leslie one of those Stahl, weird yeah. instances where, yeah, where Trump is in fact lying um, about yeah. something. He's furnishing her with all of these books, which are supposed to contain the details of some um, healthcare reform provisions that never, ever materialize. Remember he kept promising, Oh yeah, we're going to have our healthcare yeah, yeah. proposal in about a Working week, yeah. four full years in office, nothing, yeah. <laughs> no healthcare exactly. proposal ever materialized. But the the way that this interview like played out and the performative way in which she conducted the interview it just i was reminded of that watching um and i forget which reporter was covering this story uh the DeSantis story was quote unquote interrogating him um during this presser um but just the performative nature of the whole thing um kind of yeah. made me cringe but i'm i'm also wondering about like a, a number of stories that i've seen in recent weeks that have like these like glaringly disconnected headlines that seem so like obviously out of phase with the substance of the story. And it's not even a, a, a circumstance where it's always, you know, a political thing, or it always seems to lean in the direction of the left or the right. There's a story that's making the rounds now about um, Peter Thiel, uh, somewhere where the quote is that China is using Bitcoin as a quote, financial weapon, unquote. Now this is Yahoo finance, but they're certainly not the only people who've reported on this story. And, you know, you can look at what Peter says in the the clip uh, that's been circulating, and he does say this. He's at the Richard Nixon Foundation, apparently giving some sort of seminar, and he says, even though I'm pro, pro-crypto, pro-Bitcoin maximalist person, I do wonder whether at this point Bitcoin should also be thought of as part of a Chinese financial weapon against the U.S., um, the only problem is that Peter actually suggests that the euro might also be a f- thought of as a financial weapon against the U.S. And the reason he says both of these things is because China is generally is generally concerned about the U.S. dollar status as a reserve currency. And while they may not want their own currency to be a reserve currency, they want other things to be out there that will potentially hurt the U.S. And it has everything to do with the fact that the Chinese government is fundamentally long on Bitcoin. A lot of Bitcoin mining is taking place in China. They're fairly well positioned um, with respect to the United States um, because of the way that they're positioned around cryptocurrency. So when Peter says that, that isn't suggesting that Bitcoin is bad for America because it's Bitcoin and we're America. It has everything to do with U.S. policy and everything to do with the way economic policy is being conducted in the United States, which is creating a vulnerability for a country that has a fiat currency and is doing everything possible, seemingly, to try and inflate that currency. To the extent you're doing that in a world where Bitcoin exists, that's bad for you. And if it's bad I, for you, it might be good for your competitors. And I, I don't I mean, see the problem with the way that the teal thing was portrayed. I mean, I you just, don't see I, a problem with that headline. Uh, all I saw was all I saw was the clip. In fact, I retweeted it because I, th- I thought it was interesting. Uh, it was like a minute and some odd clip, and that was the thing most people were picking up. That had a quote from it, and it included the section, which basically contained hmm. the information that you just portrayed as being the contextual part of it. 
which I got because I'm mm-hmm. familiar with Peter Thiel and I'm familiar with the underlying concepts and like not a big deal. You know, it's I not think, like I think it is. I think it is a bit a big deal because what Peter is talking about is not Bitcoin itself as the financial weapon. He's talking about U.S. policy as a specific vulnerability because right. and of the existence like, of Bitcoin and the existence it's clear of the, in the euro. clip. It's clear in the clip. It's clear in the clip, but it's certainly not clear in the headline. Like the headline itself is misleading, and most people only read headlines. Okay, but like 60 Minutes just absolutely fabricated a story that even if it was true – Mm-hmm. is $100,000 of a campaign donation. That's true. That's I'd say that's worse. You can go, There's no you doubt can about go that. to the transcript on Peter Thiel. This is, we have the Which, internet. By, we, the, we, by yeah. the way. And, we can fact check your ass on and, and, but you can't. But you won't find any mention of the euro and the fact that only moments earlier he had just said that the euro is a fi- could be thought of I as think, a financial I think the euro is in the, the 75 US. second plan. And fucking who cares about Peter Thiel? But, but, <laughs> I don't care about that. Who does? That's, like, that's, why, why are I we do. standing I for do. Peter Thiel? I will stand up Fuck for Peter, Peter Thiel. Thiel. Um, I will not. I will stand up for billionaires. Dude wants I care to play nationalist. Billionaires' uh, lives matter. He, he's, they, he wants to be I won't Bitcoin any Johnny and, and, and anti-China Johnny at the same time. And he got caught having two ideologies at once. I'm great. That's that is great. Not, those two things aren't inconsistent, yeah. Matt Welch. I, I will say uh, this. Um, you're both wrong. Um, <laughs> that's my favorite thing to say. I love saying that. Um, the, the, you're both wrong. Uh, that's your yeah, Issue wrong. one, Peter Thiel, Bitcoin, China, Fred Bonds. Um, the the worst headline, I actually thought the same thing, Camille, because I saw the headline on Drudge, which was, uh-huh. Thiel declares Bitcoin, quote, Chinese financial weapon. That's not a that's not an accurate headline. But Are we saying that Matt Drudge did an inaccurate headline. No, he's, <laughs> he's, shit's getting he's, real. Uh, That's par for the course. Par for the course. Uh, no, he's a, he's a genius. Come on. Uh, no, I, no, he's great. I, I, I have sent, the Drudge Manifesto within reaching distance. I sent uh, you this story, Camille, which you you tweeted uh, from the San Francisco Chronicle. And this is small. This is mm, like how the yeah, bullshit yeah. is at like local levels. No one saw this story. No one tweeted this except for you. After I sent it to you, like no one has discussed it. And it was number one on the San Francisco Chronicle, the SF Gate website. And here's the headline. Of course. Alleged attacker in anti-Asian incident at North Beach Bar is former San Francisco pro boxer. There's no quotes. There's no, you know, the alleged is in front of attacker, alleged attacker in anti-Asian incident. You read the story, the act, the story actually says it wasn't an anti-Asian incident. It explicitly says so in the story in which somebody was asked to leave a bar because he was 16 and they, and, 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 and the guy said, you don't belong here. And he's like, as an Asian, but he's like, no, no, you're 16. You don't belong here. You can't be in here. This is a, 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 a like a bar. And that is made clear in the story. And the police, San Francisco police say, nah, it wasn't a bias incident. So this guy is maligned in the headline of his hometown newspaper saying that he attacked somebody for anti-Asian reasons, despite the fact the story doesn't say that. But that's the clickable headline. And, you know, I, you know, Fox News has been doing this stuff for so long, but we all talk about that. It's the thing, like, you know, Fox and, like, the fake news and blah, blah, blah. Like, yeah, yeah, I can't read that stuff. I, I, I take that all the heavy grain of salt. I look at those stories and say, okay, what is this actually saying? But we don't actually apply those judgments to sort of the San Francisco Chronicle or the New York Times mm-hmm. who do this shit all the time. Every day. Every day. And it's, like, sometimes yeah. slightly more sophisticated, but most of the times not. But the, the theme is the right theme. Provided the theme is the right theme, provided the sort of narrative is going in the correct direction, 
Eh, it's all right. It's like the ma- it's like Fauci and masks. You know, I'm lying to you, but it's for, it's, it's, you know, it's for good. You know, because we don't want to run on, like, just it's fine. It might not be true, but trust me, the greater good is what we're concerned about. And it's the greater good to say that there is a, um, you know, a hunt on every day for Asian yeah. people, you know, everywhere they go. Is it true when you look at that particular story? Not at all. No. Will it ever get it's, a correction? It's not what's happening in that story. Will no. any of anyone be outraged well, by this? Well, there's no. The, there's no need for a correction, right? Because it's it's actually in the, yeah, it's the actually, article. It's the yeah. it's the headline of the article, yeah. which gets you the clicks yes. and gets you the shares. That is the problem. But it is interesting that in the in this very article, there's a line there <laughs> about the the various people who are uh, promulgating misinformation. Um, yeah, while, they're, yeah. while they're talking about this particular uh, story. And of course, this publication itself is responsible for promulgating misinformation yes. via its headline. And and this stuff does not occur in a vacuum, as I think we've indicated on the podcast before, but it, it should be repeated because it fucking matters. Um, I think there is a high probability that hysteria about anti-Asian violence is likely going to create some amount of anti-Asian violence. And I think the mechanism by which that happens is bad people, or at least crazy people who are likely to perpetrate acts of violence may in fact target someone and may in fact target them on the basis of their race after encountering, encountering numerous stories and constant hysteria about these issues. I, I think that's the likely way that this dynamic works. It certainly seems to me that that is far more likely than someone hearing, you know, uh, seeing a, a parade going down the street about anti-Asian hate and being inspired. You know what? I'm not going to punch an Asian person in the face now. Now that I've seen this parade taking place and everyone wearing wearing T-shirts saying that they want to stop Asian violence, and I saw that black guy um, – holding up a sign saying that black power um, stands in solidarity with um, yellow peril, which is an amazing sign. Yeah, yeah, I mean, it's a yeah. real sign. Real you say, refer to the danger <laughs> to Asian people as yellow peril is just chef's yeah, kiss. Really, I mean, really holy shit. But the purpose, of, the purpose of such rallies are not for to dissuade potential attackers. It's to Oh, they're not, Matt? <laughs> <laughs> no, they're not. What the, the hell is the rap? point? The point is to express sympathy for the local population. Why did I go on a bridge, uh, you know, in the cold with Busty Wimsett and uh, Nancy Rommelman a year and change ago when there had been a spate of anti-Orthodox uh, attacks? It wasn't because I uh, knew and had chapter and verse that there was X number of attacks. I just had seen enough videos and I was creeped out by it. But more than that, I wanted to express to especially the Orthodox community out there who are walking around looking super Jewy. Um, mm-hmm. You got the curls and the hats. <laughs> That's a great um, phrase. It's, it's, yeah, it's true. Uh-huh. Moynihan lives in, in Williamsburg. We're used to. Um, uh, and, you know. Uh, and, I don't see uh, religion, I'm, Matt. So I never know. I'm not Jason. <laughs> I'm a, dude, at the Brooklyn Bridge Park in the especially water park, not, especially I see religion. Yeah. I super <laughs> see a lot of religion there in the, in the water park. Play with oh, my kids. God. Uh, Why are you in like the water with that, that mink coat on? It's like 98 <laughs> degrees. What are you doing? So it's an expression of solidarity with people who I worry feel unsafe or feel like that they're unloved. That's it. And and yeah. I get that I, I get that I, I okay. have not been participating in the Asian because uh, you know uh, enough already mm-hmm. Asians mm-hmm. Um, but uh, uh, no that's that's the purpose you're not gonna you're not gonna be discouraging people but I think the the 
overall point of like the test of of whether something um, should be fact checkable, um, should uh, raise people's hackles um, is something that's really attracted people's attention. Um, 60 minutes uh, thing uh, uh, underline this other stuff that we've been talking about the last couple of weeks as as well, which is like it feels like this is something new in which there wouldn't be uh, compared to the Dan Rather, um, you know, George uh, W. Which Bush, was a 60 minutes thing, right? 60 minutes two, uh, Yeah. A 60 minutes to thing about how he dodged the draft and and there was actual kind of like a fabrication of some uh, typography to to make that happen. It was a big disgrace. And every single media critic in the country wrote about this at the time. Um, uh, it was, uh, I think, uh, compared to the DeSantis case, uh, much more defensible, um, both as an underlying possible story, like the, mm-hmm. the impact of it. Um, um, or you know it's it's meaning or something, and the evidence which we find is fabricated. But like um, there wasn't this kind of silence. We've seen now a few people. I think Pointer finally, the Pointer Institute finally mentioned it, um, and I think maybe Eric Wemple, the Washington Post. But for a long time, it was just conservative mm-hmm. outlets and reason, and that's it. Um, who were mm-hmm. talking about well, this CNN, very obvious? CNN can, was on there as well. Uh, yeah, see, yeah, Oliver Darcy from CNN. They're the only people, uh, and and like you can see, that it doesn't take. You can just watch the three minutes instead of the forty seconds of the video, and it's yeah. all there. That yeah. uh, and and you have these on the record quotes from Democratic uh, uh, officials who are saying this is terrible, and who were, had been told, and there's receipts to this effect uh, by sixty minutes. Like, oh, there was not enough time to get your side of the story. I mean, it's really an awful journalism scandal, and it's something new. And they in that for three months. There isn't a sense that this needs to. <laughs> be corrected and that this and that there needs to be careers that are mm-hmm. uh, that are sidetracked because of this people are not being asked to give a time out here and this compares to things including people who are friends of this podcast who for transgressions or even alleged transgressions that are so much more minor in comparison are like made to feel like pariahs where meanwhile mm-hmm. 60 minutes the most successful news uh, television program in the history of television Made shit up about a hundred thousand dollar contract. Put that in context. How many bigger than one hundred thousand dollar state contracts have been given out during coronavirus in the state of California alone? This is such a lack of context. It's disgraceful, and we've we've gone on to this new place. I think we're like, eh, DeSantis is kind of a dick. Fuck it, we don't care. It's well, this is it's, this is the question I was actually trying to trying to get at when I raised these other parallel examples of like just kind of shitty media coverage seemingly ostensibly i know there's some disagreement amongst us of various other issues beyond left right stuff it all seems a bit icky and at least for me there's a sense in which it was clear that something had happened to reporters during the trump era that was producing a number of particular kinds of examples of just egregious reporting and it doesn't seem to have corrected itself in every instance. I, I, a lot of mainstream publications still seem to be doing like the same old sloppy work. And it's not like you couldn't find examples of this before Trump, but it does feel, and this is just feel at this point, because I haven't done any sort of empirical work on this and I haven't seen anyone else do it. It just, it feels like the sloppiness is wider spread. I feel like I encounter it. Yes in ways that I didn't encounter it before. There's a reason. Um, and I, I don't know if anyone else has that, no, that sense. There's absolutely a reason for it. 
And this has been going on for ages, right? And there's there's people that created entire industries uh, pushing back on this when it's very hard to do so. You know, that was the sort of Brent Bozell's of the world doing the media research uh, center where they put this stuff up in mm-hmm. print books, by the way. I remember the first one I ever saw was the like the bad quote, like the worst quote of the year. And I think it was Nina Totenberg, who was the New York Times uh, Supreme Court <laughs> uh, columnist, uh, saying, I think something about it. She hoped that uh, Clarence Thomas... Um, you know, uh, had high like 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 other black men, and this is by the way, this is true. Some very version of this ate a lot of cholesterol and had a heart attack or something. This was like in the nineties, and and this is I mean, cra- absolutely crazy thing to say, but this sort of thing it, it, you know exists and always has. The difference now in the Trump thing was that it was almost like a, a coming out party. Because it was on the masthead now. Democracy dies in darkness. We are not going to repeat lies anymore. We are going to say, you know, here is the, Mm -hmm. you know, uh, without evidence afterwards. We are coming out from the stuff that we have been, you know, hiding behind all of these like journalistic conventions that we had to pretend that we, uh, you know, agreed with and all this stuff. And now it doesn't matter. And you cannot put that toothpaste back in the tube. And it's funny, particularly the 60 minutes, because it is so much worse than we even remember because re- like mm-hmm. this is how bad it is the the dan rather thing you know, he gets fired and there's like a big uproar and it's a fake document he, he got he got snowed by a obvious fake that somebody said oh it's the same typeface that they use in, in word which they didn't have during the vietnam war what happens after that well in 2015 they make a film about it hollywood makes a film about it called truth in which, yeah, the hero. <laughs> in which Dan Rather is the hero of the movie. And was, mm. it, was it Mary Mapes? What was that her name? Remember that was the producer? And yeah, she was the other yeah. hero. The movie's called Truth. The guy put out a story and got fired for, for doing a story that was a lie. Whether or not he understood <laughs> it is not, you know, who, it's of no consequence. Who fucking cares? But the movie was called Truth. That's how far these people will go to actually say... No, 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 no. This is all totally fine. It was going in the right direction. George Bush is a fucking, clearly he, 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 you know, escaped the draft and blah, blah, blah. Never showed up when he was in the, in the, uh, what, National Guard, uh, Air National Guard, Guard, et cetera. All that might be true, but that's not what journalism is all about. That's not what you do in journalism. But this stuff is so common. And when people who cannot see the forest from the trees in this, when there's friends of mine who aren't in the universe that we're in, live in New York City, have very, very set political views that are kind of progressive. And if you mention this stuff, they're like, what are you talking about? Because they cannot see it because it seems so normal to them. And when you say it, they're like, what? And I'm like, no, no, this kind of stuff's mm. been going on for years. I mean, the, the, the media is, you know, a has one kind of political dimension to it. Occasionally, there's some people like, there was a conservative at what, ABC or CBS? And we know his name, Bernard Goldberg. Do you remember that? And he was like, he was a conservative oh, God, there. Yeah. It was like, because it was so rare that this guy, and then he made a career <laughs> of being the conservative that was yeah. in, at CBS. Uh, you know, John Corey. Do you remember John Corey? I think it was John Corey that was at the New York Times and was kind of a conservative. And then he kind of came out as a I mean, conservative and like. John Stossel at, at uh, ABC. Yes. For, it's when they, when they, you know, it is like find a fucking finding a truffle. It's like, I cannot believe there's one of them there where you would imagine that there'd be a, a sort of a, a greater mix. It's not going to, it doesn't exist. Yeah. There's something, I mean, I, I know Hunter Walker, uh, I had a tweet like back 
around like the first. So this is a little while ago, but he's White House correspondent at Yahoo News. And he had a tweet about a press conference that he witnessed on Air Force One in which I think, what is her name? Kareen, uh, Kareen Jean Pierre. Oh, yeah, yeah, House, yeah, 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 yeah. The deputy yes, press secretary. Yes, yes. Um, and she's giving this press like conference Haitian, on Haitian the plane woman. and he he takes a photo of her. And he tweets um, that she had become the first black woman to hold a White House press briefing in about 30 years. Her, here's a picture I, of her gaggle on Air Force One yesterday. I took it because I had the sense that I was witnessing history. Um, eventually, he would come to discover that this was like the second presser that she'd given, actually. <laughs> um, so it wasn't, wasn't, in fact, historical in the way that he suspected. But I, I mean, what immediately came to mind when, I, when this came across the transom and I finally saw it was that even 30 years ago, this would not have been a, a, a historic occurrence. No. I mean, it, it would have been kind of silly to call attention to it. And in 2021, it, it's genuinely kind of belittling to say, oh, wow, look, there's a black lady reading the thing. But the real issue here, beyond me taking that perhaps somewhat opportunistic shot at him, <laughs> is that you are a White House correspondent for a major media organization. Um, and I believe his affiliation might have even been different at the time that he sent out that tweet. And it seems to me that the most important thing here, and there's nothing mentioned about what the hell she was reading at the time, although I can imagine some things. It could be that she was echoing half-truths that the administration had been pushing about immigration on that during that particular presser. And that's the shit that interests me. I don't give a fuck what the person reading the, the talking points from the White House is saying is the shit that they are saying true. That's the thing that matters most. I mean, today, Joe Biden gives a, a speech at the White House on the lawn outlining the, the new um, executive order that he plans to executive action that he plans to take um, in order to to rein in guns and to try to safeguard lives ostensibly. And in the process of doing this, he tells numerous mm -hmm. lies you know, whether or not it will be actually reported that way, whether it will be reported that way that he asserted <laughs> without evidence that 90% of Americans support um, universal background checks, which is just fundamentally untrue, or the, you know, other claims that he made that are somewhat dubious. Like, it, it's just not obvious that that will happen. But it is a problem when the press seems to be captured. And it's certainly a problem when you know, meta narratives about racial justice, for example, become all important and just broadly agreed upon. And no one is even willing to ask questions about like totally superfluous things that once they become an obsession are no longer superfluous with respect to their consequence. Right. They may not matter um, in, in terms of the specific thing being celebrated, um, but they certainly matter in terms of the things that they distract us from and, and prevent us from asking questions about. Narrative, narrative above all, right? I mean, it is, you know, Joe Biden talking about ghost guns, which I thought was like a Jean-Claude Van Damme just... movie. It's like, ghost guns. <laughs> <laughs> they don't have serial numbers and everyone's using them. It's like, by the way, this is going to do what? Absolutely fucking nothing. And everyone knows it. So it's performative. And you would hope that journalists would be like, isn't this just another like bump stock uh -huh. part two or, you know, assault weapon ban part three and something that, you know, handguns, legal handguns that people get illegally. It's not like they're not printing off 3D guns and like going on shooting rampages. That's not happening. Mm -hmm. But he's connecting these things by like, you know, there's so many mass shootings and then we're going to do these ghost gun stuff. Nobody cares because the overall desire of Joe Biden is the correct one. 
is to crack down on gun violence. I mean, there's every bit of life has a version of this. I walked by a bookstore the other day in a very nice town that is not in the city. And there was an Angela Davis book in the window. And I'm like, you know, I know you can't tweet something when you were 16 without losing your job, but how about the whole murder of the judge thing? Nobody cares about that. <laughs> like literally no one cares about that with the t-shirts on and all this stuff. It's like, no, they don't. Cause it's the narrative. Well, had she has the right narrative and it is like, yeah. you know, had she looks cool and you know, the Panther is the same way. It's like everything is, I mean th- that these things are judged equally is utterly laughable. And, you know, Joe Biden is not going, I mean, if Joe Biden came out and said, you know what, I've come around on this. I think that, you know, any new gun legislation would be damaging uh, to the country, to the Second Amendment, et cetera. Then he would be fucking fact checked to the ground. I mean, it's all Mm -hmm. about, it's a very, very simple thing. I mean, there's nobody doesn't know this, but once in a while, when you point it out, you're like, oh, fuck. Yeah, that's right. That's not, that's not, they're not going to get fact checked. I suspect, Matt, can I ask you a quick question about gun stuff before we change? Um, Well, both of you, I guess, but I know I am more vehemently pro second amendment than, than the two of you monsters. Um, But I I wanted to just focus in on the other stuff that, that the executive action included. So there's the ghost gun regulation, which as Moynihan mentioned, it's not clear this will save anyone's (laughs) life, at least in the short run. Although I I do think it's a a relevant thing to be concerned about in the future. Perhaps it's also already Um, illegal to to have a gun that is not, is not actually registered with it. Right. Exactly. Yeah. Um, And you also mentioned uh, bump stocks. And in this particular case, uh, I guess there was arm braces uh, involved in one of these most recent mass shootings and this arm brace is supposed to make like a handgun operate more like a rifle and the the sale of these arm braces unlike say silencers is not regulated you know whether or not that's something that ought to be regulated is something that people can debate um but then there's there's two other things i mean one is this is again executive action and one wonders why the biden administration is not making some serious effort to try and actually get legislation passed which is something that we used to do in this country but you know whatever now we just do executive actions all the time but there are these specific things that extreme risk protection orders um otherwise known as red flag laws which would ostensibly allow family members to report, say, a member of their family who they thought was at risk of hurting someone or themselves with a firearm, and that would alert local authorities to get involved and take some sort of action to limit this person's right to own or purchase firearms for some period of time. There is essentially what the Biden administration is talking about doing is creating some sort of template legislation that it would promote to the states and encourage them to pass these laws and specifically talked about a correlation between the reduction in access to firearms um, and a reduction in suicides. And we we did see last year, for example, suicides um, declined, although um, the the fact that they declined has generally been talked about more so in the context of like COVID happening and us having expectation that people would would hurt themselves more because of this. So that's good news. I do find myself a bit torn because I think that I want to know more about red flag laws and how they function, uh, because it does seem to me that you do have things like uh, orders of protection, which can be implemented. And so long as you have a very clear, like well-defined legal process for how these things actually get adjudicated, 
you know, in, in an effort to try and protect people and to try to get authorities involved in a material way when things are developing very quickly and family members who are closest to people yeah. are oftentimes the number one people who are at risk. They're often also the only people who might know that this person is a danger to others. Giving people some mechanism to try and get involved in a fundamental way, again, talking about policy that's happening at the local level, it, it seems like it's not a terrible I did me. a story on this, um, but I don't. Yeah. I haven't looked at this very closely, did, so maybe yeah. yeah I did you a story on this in Washington, and they they did a, a a version of this in Washington State, and I went and um, interviewed a couple families and and some some law enforcement people. It was I think a, a, the HBO show many years ago, probably 2016, it happened, um, and it was interesting because at the time, you know, the ACLU is a different organization. I suppose it's probably changed in Washington <laughs> State. The ACLU opposed the red flag law. And mm -hmm. they opposed it on pretty reasonable grounds because there are a couple things. I mean, one is that, you know, people can weaponize this against, you know, ex-spouses, um, sure. people who they don't like. Uh, and they'd seen that happen in, in, in a couple instances. And the other one was the ACLU just essentially made an argument of like, you cannot take away somebody's constitutional right based mm -hmm. on, you know, a judge's assessment process, yeah. of their mental uh, uh, state, which is a very difficult thing. Mm -hmm. um, but, you know, the motivation of it was I completely understand. And it's, it's, it's sensible in a way, but the process is really, really difficult. And it has to be on a state level. In the Washington one, I mean, you, how would you do this on a federal level? You couldn't. I mean, who right. would, who's going to actually talk to, you know, go and sit down with somebody like, okay, I'm going to remove one of your constitutional rights right now because you don't seem mentally okay to me. Um, I get it. I mean, I think it's it's the right direction to go, right? Because it is, you know, when you saw what happened in in um, the Capitol uh, with the NOI guy, the National Islam guy, you saw what happened in Atlanta and what happened in Colorado. Uh, you know, the two of those were actually framed in different ways, by the way. It wasn't a Nation mm -hmm. of Islam thing or a Syrian immigrant who had, you know, sort of particular politics. It, it, and, and they were right, by the way. They were absolutely right to not do that. That was the right way of reporting those stories, but they were doing it for the wrong reasons. They both clearly had deep mental health issues, deep, abiding, obvious to people around them too, mental health issues. So there has to be some line in between this, but, but removing... It would be different if you were in Norway and they had a hunting rifle and there's no constitution, right? But there's, you know, taking away someone's constitutional right because you do that for First Amendment rights. If they're, I mean, why stop there? It's that's what's worrisome about it. Yeah. And part of it is that if you look at how, um, like background checks or disqualifications mm -hmm. uh, have been used on preventing people from, um, using their Second Amendment individual right to uh, uh have possession of a firearm um and i get that a lot of people wish that that wasn't the interpretation of the second amendment but it is um <laughs> contested around the around the edges of it uh, in ways that are interesting um to talk about in the future but generally speaking there's an individual right to have firearms so in the past on the federal level more on the state level what is one of the easiest ways to be disqualified from owning a gun. Well, you have a pot conviction, mm -hmm. right? You've been convicted of consorting with a drug that a majority of American adults have consumed. So uh, it's just a question of whether you got caught. 
Um, uh, and, you know, I, as we mentioned earlier, there's these laws are going away on a daily basis. But in fact, I mean, the biggest anti-gun laws tend to be anti-pot laws. They're like they're thrown together. What was stop and mm-hmm. frisk about? Mm-hmm. Like, how did that affect people negatively? It affected it when they turned out their pockets and they had a half-finished joint in their pocket, um, which wasn't illegal uh, when it was in their pocket, but when they turned it out, then it was now illegal, and we could like we could we could uh, lock them up. So like it's it's this is the problem when you have, especially on the federal level, like w- what is the easiest way to get people disqualified um, and to have their um, their constitutional rights taken away from them? It's going to be the easiest way. It's not going to be the hard way, um, and so you're going to then disqualify potentially tens of millions of people who have no business of that. So I agree, Camille, like it seems just kind of mentally you want to keep the guns away from the crazy. Mm -hmm. You just Mm -hmm. that's like we we should figure out a way to keep the guns away from the crazy. It's very hard in a country where there's 350 million guns or whatever the number is, where one in three, I think is the last number of at least households have a gun. And one in three people are fucking crazy, too. Uh, you think yes, that, in various ways. Yes, it's a little bit higher than that. Um, but I, I like, know very few people who I wouldn't try to put on one of these lists. So I should probably mention even, that as well. Even the no, I mean, I uh, yeah, I don't want you to have a gun, Camille. Uh, no, even even <laughs> not the, gonna like, stop me. The no Come fly lists, it. the uh, the uh, the stupid e-verify list. All right, yeah. like, uh, the the computer program that's going to decide whether to make sure that you're uh, 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 can work legally. All these things are rife with all kinds of due process violating errors and just yeah. uh, numeracy. So it's very difficult. Um, and the chances of it being used badly and disenfranchising or not disenfranchising, but, uh, but de-rightsing um, right. people are, are very, very high. And the more you federalize that issue, the bigger the error bands become. Mm. Yeah. Um, I'm seeing headlines right now, and we haven't had an opportunity to to look at this very closely or talk about it, but there have been many examples of this recently, um, that Marin County uh, is the the newest locale here in the great state of California, very close to me. In fact, I'm in Marin County now, if I'm not mistaken, uh, because I'm at the office uh, where I record. Um, And... Uh, Marin County has recently passed another one of these, a universal basic income statute that would give $1,000 to uh, black moms in Marin County. Of course, this is not a universal program. This is another one of those pilot programs. So there's like a couple a couple hundred people. Not, Both of them? That's not UBI. That's BMBI. Black <laughs> mother basic income. Yeah. But you must be a black mom is that in order right? to take advantage of this program. Um, so it's, uh, yeah, only, well, not black, actually only mothers of color will be eligible for this $1,000 per month payment. If you are a white mom who is impoverished, fuck you and fuck your stupid kids. We don't care. How is this possible? (laughs) What is wrong (laughs) with We want to help you. Now, granted, this is almost certainly unconstitutional. In fact, I will say this. It is blatantly unfucking constitutional, Right. But so was this thing in Oakland, and so are a lot of these other programs that keep getting floated and then perhaps getting amended later um, in order to make bring them into line with the law. But it seems to me that like legal challenges are definitely coming. And I wonder a little bit about what the strategy is here. If this is just a matter of broadcasting your politics, 
or if this is a genuine attempt by local officials to try and enact some of these these anti-racist policies that folks are so passionate about. And, you know, I'm asking this on the same day that the director of the CDC um, issues some public statements talking about systematic racism and racism broadly, which now just means like structural racism, et cetera, um, which is all a, a function of like equity and disparities and health outcomes, that this is a grave threat to the nation. And it's going to be a priority for the CDC to try and address these things going forward. Um, I'm certainly alarmed by <laughs> by the prevalence of these things and generally just kind of weirded out uh, by all of it. Um, and I don't know. I'm, I'm pushing the conversation in that in this direction. I don't know if we'll actually talk about this or if we'll just bypass it because no, the there's I, I, it's it's with us every day. Earlier today, as I was sharing on our. Uh, ongoing text rant um mm -hmm. for a Which story well that i was secured. don't try uh, to hack it <laughs> super super well secured uh <laughs> peter thiel's got it all all like, lined up we're not going to take him out of context <laughs> and he's protected us entirely hobbiton is protected um uh, no uh I, for a, a story that i'm uh, hopefully going to finish tomorrow kind of apropos of nothing but talking as usual about like the way that they push all this stuff in the public education system um for a throwaway line, I did a Google News search on the phrase systemic, not systematic, Camille. Boy, you're so mm -hmm. not black. It's systemic racism. Uh, by the way, let's interject here. Is Tracy going to get the grant? That's the question. <laughs> That's the question. No. Oh, really? Are you sure? Qualify. Yeah. yeah. Are you sure about that? This is universal basic, All right? right? So she won't qualify. Um, but anyways, I, I was just doing this uh, assuming that like – Okay, there's going to be some local controversies. Um, it's you know half of which or more is going to be school uh, mm -hmm. based and whatever. Holy cow! Uh, some of the headlines uh, include. Uh, uh, oh, I don't have the one in front of me. It's uh, too bad. Let's. Uh, there is. Uh, uh, oh, yes, here it is from Lancaster Farming. The. Uh, <laughs> I just say agriculture one. Yes, I, I did this. I, is systemic racism a problem in American agriculture? Yes, that's a oh, headline. Yeah, of course. <laughs> Lancaster, I <bet> it is. <laughs> PA, uh, farming, uh, and my favorite of the genre, which uh, must be on the second page. I must have kicked it down to the second page here by uh, tweeting it out. Um, was uh, holy cow! It's disappeared. I'm gonna have to go on my uh, Twitter page. It was, it was from uh, pharmacy. Uh, today, I believe, is the name of the Great magazine. Pharmacists have a role to play in dismantling systemic racism. Yes, they do. Of course they do. <laughs> Over there. And, and Pharmacy Times. I apologize to the good mm. people who are working at Pharmacy Times. Who says journalism is dead when Pharmacy Times is out there uh, cracking down? No, it's it's like it is in part of so many conversations. The Virginia State House is voting um, this week on uh, a systemic racism thing. There's a there's a children's hospital in Seattle because a single guy resigned uh, is now like, you know, uh, having all these commissions and people pledging to do better, um, you know, talking about the systemic racism. It is around us entirely. And as I've mentioned before, something I didn't realize until I was writing a feature um, about it, but on literally day one of the Biden administration, they signed a really sweeping executive order combating systemic racism. And, and when Joe Biden was talking about this in the White House, there's a great uh, uh, clip of him saying this. He's like, uh, uh, that's why it's really important to have racial equal 
and then he corrected that's himself equity. That's and right. went to equity instead yeah. Uh, yeah. because that's the word. And mm-hmm. as Camille rightly pointed out on Real Time with Bill, Bill Moore, HBO program, whose uh, <laughs> highlights you can watch on YouTube um, and elsewhere, uh, the modern parlance of equity um, is it has re-smuggled in equality of outcome, which was mm-hmm. a uh, you know a far left ideal that was understood widely as being unattainable and perhaps rightly so because it's too. It requires moving too much around in order to do it. I mean, most of the communist countries have racial equality in their constitutions, and they tried to force it all through. And then mass emisceration is one of the side products of that, uh, at that and also super uh, inequality among races uh, in most of these places. Um, it is around us all the time, and it is ever-growing. And all the, the email correspondence that we get from all of you we sometimes talk about them on the Patreon, but usually we can't because the stories are too long and crazy. Um, uh, it, it, and is, it is part and identifying to is like, I am this at Nike. And it's like, no, 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 don't say that. Don't say that. <laughs> so, yeah. And uh, Camille, you say you said, like, uh, what's the what is the use of this when it's almost certainly to be declared unconstitutional? I would uh, slow that a little bit because. Similarly to the way that our good uh, police officer friends who listen to this podcast, and and, and this has been true of, of uh, uh, cops who read uh, Reason Magazine over the years, have pointed out to us, like, yeah, your libertarian stuff is great. You realize that 99% of the world that we live in, all of your ideals don't apply. Like, you can't just do your libertarian thing. That's not how the, the real world is working. So you mm-hmm. can pass, including gun laws, but also these kind of UBIs, they will be – the force of law. It'll take a while for those things to be adjudicated, um, to be challenged in court, to work their way through the system. They're not going to be a lot of preliminary injunctions to show that these definitely racist <laughs> policies are out there. I mean, they're doing this with vaccines too, right? They're like saying, okay, are you black? Cool. You can get back vaccinated. Are you white? Okay. Are you under uh, 50? Uh, maybe uh, if you have the Moynihan comorbidity. Um, so like uh, the, the, we're going to see a ton of these. We've seen like three in the last like seven to 10 days. Um, I think this is only going to accelerate, especially in those places which are heavily populated places uh, mm-hmm. along the coasts uh, where this now dominates the way. I mean, Bill de Blasio in New York um, launched his commission to uh, look into and dismantle systemic racism. My fucking elementary school for my daughter on Monday had the first of a three-part series about dismantling segregation in New York schools. Like, <laughs> you would think there might be some yeah. other things to talk about. Yeah. By the way, did they well, notice that everyone yeah. in the class is white? They're like, uh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, that's some... Well, some of y'all getting shipped out. Exactly, some of y'all exactly. getting shipped out. Busing is well, back. Well, I think... What I just want to point out one thing escapes, quickly because go for to, it, to Matt's yeah. point, he mentioned this on our thread... Yeah. And I, I did the same Google search, and he, um, I, I saw the agriculture one, but um, it, I mean, it's all enveloping. And I wanted to add a few that Matt didn't see because I think we're on the second page. Um, just on that previous theme, Syracuse University School of Agriculture students uncover the forgotten histories of systemic racism. Okay, uh, yeah. Dermatology Magazine says fighting systemic racism one dermatology patient at a time. Wow, yes. That's a good one. And how far has it gotten into the debate? Uh, This is uh, uh, NBC channel in Boston. 
that I grew up watching, uh, local news. From the pandemic to systemic racism, here's where Boston's mayoral candidates stand. So that is, in the mayoral debate, that's the Mm -hmm. thing that gets the headline. Where do you stand on this? And if you say, well, I don't know if this is a thing um, in the way that you think it's a thing, uh, that's the end of your campaign. So you should maybe just yeah. back out at that point. Yeah. I mean, one one thing I'll, I'll also enter into the record here. Um, there was a piece in Boston Review back on March 17th, 2021, which only came to my attention today because I have all these wonderful friends who send me these awful things to look at because they want me to have some sort of seizure uh, during the day. And the, the title of this piece is An Anti-Racist Agenda for Medicine. And you should go find this piece and read it. Because I think it illustrates all of the worst qualities about this push for equity in healthcare. And explicitly what they're pushing for is a racial parity in bad outcomes. You know, the the article starts off by talking about COVID and how they were so shocked to see all of these primarily black people being wheeled into their hospitals for treatment with COVID because it seemed like there were so many more black people than white people that needed treatment, which, I mean, if you, it stands to reason then that if they'd seen, you know, proportionately more white people who were sick from COVID, that they wouldn't have been nearly as alarmed. And someone, someone might be listening and say, well, that's an unfair way to look at this. But at bottom, all of this is about the fact that black people, there are too many black people who are suffering from bad outcomes and Because of that, we should explicitly be pursuing race-conscious programs and policies in our hospital in order to try to address this disparity fundamentally. Like, why should I care? Why should anyone be alarmed by healthcare providers who are narrowly focused on a particular issue, namely trying to close the gap with respect to health disparities? Well, healthcare is really, really complicated. It is hard to do under the best of circumstances. I have in the past raised concern about things like say preventable medical injury. There are any number of important reforms that might be pursued by the healthcare community that might be championed by the healthcare community that could on net save people's lives and result in us doing sort of better care overall. But to make a matter of obsession, this policy that is literally straight out of Harrison Bergeron that is particularly focused on reapportioning bad outcomes <laughs> or, or, or put another way, improving the outcomes of a particular racial group is just pernicious. And it seems to me precisely the sort of like expensive, distracting policy that might have bad outcomes for patients. And at a minimum, when you go in to seek treatment for some condition as say a white person, you might have to wonder if the policy of this hospital that has healthcare providers explicitly concerned with like the race of the people who they're treating, if your treatment is going to be somehow undermined or less prioritized than sort of the black person who also comes into the hospital with the same malady, especially when even in their own analysis, um, the same piece that I mentioned from Boston Review like they mentioned that part of what seems to correspond to the disparities in treatments in certain areas is that white patients are advocating for themselves more in the hospital than their black counterparts. And if you would think that encountering language like that in the piece would say, oh, well, great, that's going to complicate the issue for them. They're going to talk about you know, why particular people might be more likely to advocate for themselves. Well, they don't do that. They it's don't also wrestle with the reality that. that this is just... 
Well, it, it's it's very difficult to measure it. It's not impossible to, of course, to make up a study that says that they're doing precisely that. Yeah, I and mean, how do you quantify um, that? But at a minimum, again, it's just it's so complicated. The whole thing is so nebulous. It just seems to me that there are so many important things that we could we could worry about. And I just like going to Harrison Bergeron General Hospital. Just I don't think that that's a thing that we want. I can't imagine that that's the world that we want to live in. It's the world increasingly that everybody wants to live in. And everybody, I mean, not everybody in the United States or in the world. I mean, everybody in the sort of, you know, social cohort that all of us kind of interact with, um, you know, kind of upper middle class, college educated in the kind of universe of media is the Mm. incredibly simplistic. These are people who, you know, think themselves amazingly clever, but they believe one Thing that explains it all. One thing is that disparities must mean discrimination. That's it. End of end of story. Mm. And if you say, well, is that actually the case? They'll say, well, you know, there's historical discrimination at the very least is why we're saying, and of course that's true. I mean, it's absolutely true that there's, you know, historical discrimination creates socioeconomic groups and, you know, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. But what does one do with that at a certain point? And then the add to that this kind of thing that in the ideology of anti-racism, and that's to be very, very separate from the actual idea of anti-racism, which is opposing racism, which you know any sensible person would do. But the ideology of anti-racism is the question that is asked of allies, quote unquote. It, by the way, always remember that you have to speak a totally different language when you're talking about this nonsense. And ne- always be scared when people are rewriting the language of you know just regular discourse because there's always something pernicious behind it. But you know the allies, mm-hmm. what are they asking of the allies all the time? It's like, what are you doing to counter white supremacy? What are you doing? What are your actions? You can't just sit there and say, so in the hospital thing, it's like, there's a disparity here. And, you know, in the gospel of anti-racism, I have to do something about it, right? I have to motivate myself because this disparity is clearly the result of discrimination. So I have to push the other way. What is the only way you can actually push back on that is saying, well, I could guess I could prioritize care for different races. I mean, it makes sense to these people. I mean, to me, it's absolute lunacy. And it's, and it's mm-hmm. the, more offensive than anything is that it's so shallowly considered. There's nobody who actually gets deep consideration to this. And like you, the actual academics that have looked at this stuff over time, and this is not ideological in any way, people like Orlando Patterson, you know, Randall Kennedy, you know, just people in that I've read in the past, just like I don't think of as, you know, right wing or left wing or anything like that. Even like, you know, the stuff that like Skip Gates wrote in the past was, I think he's probably adapted to the times a little bit. I mean, all of it was incredibly smart and nuanced and said, let's look at the entire picture here. We've distilled that down to disparity equals discrimination equals need to do something about it. Action now. Mm-hmm. It's the same thing with Joe Biden with guns. But ghost guns are not going to do anything. But you're out there doing it. You're out there saying to people, signaling to them, we're on the right track. We're doing something about guns. It's not going to do a damn fucking thing because I can't do anything about overturning the Second Amendment, but I'm going to say it and I'm going to be there and you're going to appreciate it for me. It's the same thing every, like the pharmacy fucking magazine. Like, oh, we're fighting uh, uh, white supremacy. Can you give me my fucking Xanax so I can calm down having to listen to you? Like you're the, like, you're the solution and, the, and my problem at the same time, you fucking pharmacists that are actually dispensing pills saying we're fighting white supremacy. It's become a cult. And there is 
in some people that I know are part of this, very, very good intentions. Um, I can think of one person in particular I'm thinking of, very, very good intentions. I don't think they realize they're being snowed by this. They really, really want the world to be a better place. I get that. I'm on their side. Um, don't fall for it. Of course, the racial disparities, though, and, and I think you, you pointed this out, like it is complicated. History yeah. has some has some bearing on some of this. But in a lot of cases, it's hard to say. Like, it there is are differences say, yeah. in outcomes within those racial groups. Yes, very much so. And even, even when we talk about the disparities with respect to COVID, uh, uh, the numbers that I remember from like January were like 16.8% of all deaths known um, where races known related to COVID were attributable to, to quote unquote, black Americans when they are, 14%. you know, around 12.4% yeah. of the population. So are they overrepresented? Sure. But then you could like look by state and there are many states where blacks are represented in proportion to their share of the population or are, um, represented at, a lower proportion um, of all COVID deaths relative to their share of the population. Like, should we be doing something there to try and ameliorate the disparity that exists? Is that a problem? Is that of grave concern? Is the only disparity that concerns us the disparity between whites and blacks? There's something really perverse about our obsession with racial disparities as opposed to focusing on whatever we can do that is of the highest possible efficacy to save the life of the next patient that comes in the door or to do the most that we can possibly do in the most efficient way possible to save as many lives as possible. The notion that an individual life matters more or less because a bunch of other people that looks like the person who's under your knife or under your care that the value of this life matters more or less depending on whether a bunch of other people who kind of fucking look like them have also been saved or are also sick. It's obscene. Like there's no universe where I can get on board with anything that when you scrutinize it, that is actually what the, the morality of this policy looks like in, in operation. This is the problem I have with the use of the phrase like neo-racist to describe anti-racist policies and critical race theory in, in operation. It's not neo-racist. It's just fucking racist. It is racist to <laughs> invoke policies that discriminate against people or in favor of people on the basis of their race. And it doesn't matter if you're doing it in order to, to perform some sort of restorative operation. There are people who are actively being discriminated against by these policies. They are necessarily racist for that matter. And that's true whether it's in the United States and it's targeting white people or black people. And it's true whether it's in South Africa where there is also a, a plague of this kind of woke obsession um, whether it's targeting white people or black people. It's the same shit and it's all racism and we should call it the same thing and it should outrage us for precisely the same reasons as any other manifestation of racism outrages us because it is unjust and wrong. There's good news, Camille, which is uh, according to The Guardian, um, uh, they have a story about how Biden's $2 trillion infrastructure plan seeks to achieve racial justice. Mm -hmm. So 
Um, we're going to finally infrastructure our way out of <laughs> racial injustice. Are they, they going to build just bridges the, just for people of color? <laughs> what is the <laughs> Yes. Well, you have to pay oh, an extra toll yes. if you're white. Yes. Oh. Yeah. <laughs> yes. This, this is to get back for the Edmund Pettus Bridge. Um, <laughs> oh, it's a gosh. joke. Come on. I, I'm, I'm opposed I, I, to I laugh because opposed to what happened. The, I'm, like, I'm not on the side of. <laughs> Mostly. Mostly. I, yeah, I'm yeah. not a Bull Connor fan. I'm sorry. Can't can't yeah. can't uh, you know make you happy on that one? Well, well, the white people who were also marching with with the Negroes to as they pursued rights and who sometimes were sacrificed in the process of pursuing uh, a more equitable, um, and I mean that in the traditional sense and just sort of America, well, their lives don't matter nearly as mm. much. The people who matter are the black people who laid down their lives to secure better well, rights I, for black people. It's all just so. I think I said this on the Patreon. And uh, our friend Nancy Roman tweeted about it, and I'm glad she was watching it. That I recommended to people to watch Eyes on the Prize, which is really, really good, mm-hmm. and and it it's good. on the PBS uh, website if you want to watch it. But it's like I think eight parts or oh. something, but it's really, really terrific. And it it's I, this is not why I like it, but it's it's not um, you know inflected with all. The, I think of that documentary being made today, and all the mm. nonsense people that would be interviewed, and all the nonsense language that you'd have to hear. It's a very, very straight. Uh, history that uh, does a very very good yeah. job of uh, of uh, looking at the civil rights struggle. What do you guys think? I mean, is we got we got anything else that you really want to? No, I think we had a pretty good we, uh, punch pretty out good. of here. Well, bounce. Bounce is pretty good. good. And if okay. you want to hear more, good. <laughs> I can tell you where <laughs> you to go. You know what to do. Yeah, it's you called pa- Patreon. It's a French uh, website, yeah. um, and mm-hmm. uh, you can find us there. Um, and I think next week uh, we're actually planning to do uh, an immigration extravaganza. Um, I think it. We were talking about this. Mm-hmm. Uh, we've talked about it a few times on the podcast recently. Certainly, there's been a lot of reporting on the the uh, migrant crisis, as it's been described, the surge, as it's been described by others, but mostly white supremacists who are trying to use uh, a colonial framing to dehumanize Decon- per AOC. <laughs> Um, um, but we're going to have a conversation about immigration, I think, next week. And we're going to focus on uh, policies that actually make uh, a difference um, as opposed to a lot of the, the bullshit talking points um, and political gamesmanship that is largely dominating this issue. I find that there are very few people um, in American politics, um, and I mean, I can literally count them on my, my two hands, possibly one, um, who actually seem to genuinely care about what's happening with respect to these issues. Um, so uh, I'm, I'd love for us to dig into them a bit more um, and to give people uh, a bit of sort of thoughtful, um, sober musings on precisely where the problems are and where the opportunities are to fix some of this shit because we, we can actually fix some of these things. So that is uh, coming attraction. We are going to fix the problem next week. It will be very, yeah. <laughs> very be easy. Over. And it'll be over. That's going to be great. And you'll be able to talk about yeah. your your adventures um, on the border by yeah, that time, yeah. right, Moynihan? Because you've got a recent piece I, about just coming that. up. And I watched uh, Governor Abbott's uh, press conference, which was something else uh, from last mm. week, where he was like holding up, you know, TikTok videos of from from alleged cartel members trying to uh, recruit people in Texas to like do their bidding. It was it was bizarre mm. and. At certain points, it was quite effective, uh, actually. But others, others, I was just kind of scratching my head. But, uh, but no, I mean, I'm, I'm, you know, 
in the middle of all of these issues. And I've been more pro-immigration than most, most people I know, but, you know, going down there is like, I think this is a, this is a, a bad moment. And, you know, you don't want to sound like Tom Tancredo or something, but like something's got to be done because <laughs> it's not, it's bad. I mean, it's bad for everybody. It's bad for everybody. Yeah. So anyway, we'll talk about that next week. Yeah. All, All right. right. Matt. All right. All okay. Right. No one. Bye. 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 We, we know of new methods of attack. The Trojan horse. The fifth column. 